Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome back to the Prospect Interview, where we speak to the brightest minds and talk about the ideas that matter in politics, arts and society. I'm Tom Clark, the editor of Prospect magazine. This week, our books editor, Samir Rahim, is joined by the author and now blockbusting historian, James Hawes, to talk about disjointed, confusing and now hotly controversial meaning of England and English nationalism. In the new issue of Prospects, which is out on newsstands now, James writes an essay provocatively called The English Delusion, which explains why the land we're brought up to think of as the world's original nation-state was in fact never a proper country at all. He looks at the very beginning of the place that we call England, how it emerged out of fights, out of fractured communities, and most particularly repeated battles between the colonisers and the colonised. It's no wonder, he writes, that the English never really knew who they were or that England is now fracturing. Samir, over to you. Um, James Hawes, thank you so much for joining us. Great pleasure, Samir. Lovely to be here. Um, Englishness is always on our mind these days, and especially so. We're speaking just uh, a few days after England's defeat at Wembley against Italy in the European Championships. And what struck me, um, just sort of observing football tournaments over the years, is how when I first started watching the game, maybe 1990, I would have thought, was the first tournament I watched, um, all the England fans had Union Jack flags. That was the what represented them. It was sort of Britain and England were really sort of melded together. But And as we saw, um, not only at the football, but with Boris Johnson, he covered the entirety of, uh, uh, of Downing Street with England flags, St George flags. And that, it seems like over the last 25 years or so, we've had a resurgence of Englishness and English identity. And what do you think that is? Well, the history of it's fascinating, isn't it? Because, I mean, it really starts at Euro 96, of course, uh, when England fans adopt the flag of St George ostensibly because they're playing Scotland and then but then they stick with it forever as it turns out and what's so fascinating in, in, in political context is the way that this is then picked up by Tony Blair in his final conference speech before his landslide victory now in the two before that he has absolutely carefully avoided the use of the word England at all 
he's promised, and it's the first actual you know, black and white promise of, of referendums to the Welsh and Scots on devolution, but he's managed to actually avoid using the word England or Englishness at all until now, but he picks up on it. And in 96, he actually copies, he pinches the words of the Three Lions song to say, Labour's coming home and 17 years of hurt. It's fascinating. Something happened around that time, quite clearly. It's often said that, um, well, with you know, the push for Scottish devolution, Welsh devolution, um, power sharing in, in Northern Ireland, um, that, that this sort of English nationalism is a reaction against, you know, that sort of, not exactly the breakup of the union as yet, but sort of a, a slight dissolving of it, um, um, as it were. But, but in the piece that you wrote for us in the magazine and in your excellent book as well, you, you, trace, this, um, you trace this back much further, don't you? It's a, it's a fascinating story of, of, of democracy in the UK. And when we look at it carefully, as we should now, above all, we find, I think, that, that, the, that the United Kingdom was in a sense as doomed by nationalism as, as we know the Habsburg Empire was. You know, every historian will say that the Habsburg Empire was doomed by the rival nationalisms of its uh, various imperial peoples. The United Kingdom, in fact, I would say was as well. The great mystery about it is that why after the Third Reform Act, when the Welsh, the Scots, and of course, above all, the Irish immediately started openly or implicitly making nationalist demands, what happened to English nationalism in that 110 years between 1885 and 1996? And the answer, I think, lies in, in the nature of the Conservative Party and its, its domination within England itself. That it's, uh, there's been a kind of systematic uh, sort of disguising and submerging of, of the English nationalist problem within the United Kingdom. And it's not that that's caused the collapse, but with the collapse of the United Kingdom, this problem, which has never been solved, is, is finally rearing its head openly. We've got some research in the magazine um, that goes alongside your piece that says that you know, the more English someone defines themselves, they tend to be older, whiter and more socially conservative and perhaps um, less university educated um, and the, and somebody who defines themselves as British it's always seemed to be in a more sort of capacious by its nature multinational identity and there does seem to be a sort of um, distinct different feel to the way you describe yourself in those different two different terms isn't that? I think you've, you've hit the nail on the head there because the very I mean this goes right back to 1707 essentially and to the 18th century the triumph of the new elite of the 18th century is that the very term British, of course, Great Britain, is invented in the 18th century. It's a brand new political construct, not some time hallowed thing. It's invented with the union of England and Scotland and the kind of de facto, though not, though not strictly speaking, um, uh, constitutional union with Ireland. That doesn't happen until 1801. But it, it, it's a completely new idea of a newly invented country. And it's been invented in the wake of an invasion from Holland under German speaking kings by an elite who are all, absolutely every one of them has Latin and ancient Greek. They all speak fluent French as well, socially. And this sort of multinational British Isles elite construct this brand new state for themselves. And that's, and there's been no reference at all. No one asked the common peoples of Ireland, Scotland, Wales or England about it. So the very notion of Britishness has always been kind of multicultural, transnational. And when and it's that when that elite culture starts to collapse, 
that the various nationalisms raise their head, and most notably, of course, the English now. So we're gradually going, creeping back in time. But let me take you back to um, um, 1066, really, because in, in, you make the argument that essentially England was, in a way, a colonial invention or an invention of uh, a foreign power nation. And that sense of tension between the elites, the southern elites, uh, and the sort of the common people of England has existed all the way back since then. Absolutely. I mean, there, there's a kind of obsession of historians like, like Robert Toombs, the Brexiteer, to, to try and prove desperately that, that England was this ancient, united, powerful country. Well, the, the question one has to ask those people, of course, is if it was so wonderfully united and powerful, how on earth was it conquered after one single battle by 5,000 Normans? And the answer is it never was. Um, England, what we call England, the state which we now know as England was built as were most European states in those three or 400 years after the turn of the, the, the first millennium. But in England, what happened here was completely unique. Only Russia could perhaps compare with it under the, under the Mongol suzerainty. And that's that the country, its institutions, the things we claim for ourselves as unique, like parliament, like Magna Carta, these were all constructed by an elite who spoke a completely different language the general population. And we seem to have a great sort of act of national amnesia about this. And I think the, the best example is, 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 is Churchill's wonderful passage on, on the signing of Magna Carta at Runnymede. It's a great piece of Churchillian purple prose, of course, and it, and it brilliantly evokes the fear and trembling of the barons that they've got to nail this bastard King John down and so forth. But, and this is a book, remember, called The History of the English-Speaking Peoples. He never once mentions the fact that every single person involved in those negotiations would have been speaking French. The English were nothing to do with it. In 1215, the English were a subordinate colonized caste. Anyone who wanted to be anyone in that England had to speak French on every public occasion. And that went on for another century and a half after Magna Carta. It's a huge, long space of time, which I believe has completely deformed our, our politics compared to inverted commas, your normal nation states where you have an elite and a people speaking basically the same language. Yes, and this has been drawn on by uh, modern Brexiteers, as you, as you mentioned in your piece. You quote a tweet from uh, Daniel Hannan, the Tory, I think he was an MEP, but I think he's gone to the Lords now. Um, and he's talking about 1066 and the Battle of Hastings. This is his tweet. England's Nakba, Harold Godwinson, the last Anglo-Saxon king, fell in battle, opening the door to occupation and feudalism. And this is the idea of the, the Norman yoke, isn't it? That sort of was... Really yeah, absolutely. This is fantastic myth that, that people like Hannon and, say, Robert Toombs and people love, is the idea that somehow before, before the Norman conquest, England was some kind of proto-populist democracy with this thing, the Vitangamod, the meeting of the wise men, who they claim somehow in some mystical way represented ordinary Anglo-Saxon Englishmen who, as Hannon said, had brought freedom with them from deep within the German forests. Uh, it's, a, it's a weird and quasi-racist, mad, you know, Aryanist narrative of somehow Germans bring, bring freedom with them and so forth. It's very dodgy stuff. It's also complete historical nonsense. Um, the king he calls the last Anglo-Saxon king, Harold Godwinson, was in fact half Danish. He was bitterly opposed by every uh, powerful magnet in England north of the Thames, essentially. He was simply a warlord who took power without any without any justification. His family had only ris risen to greatness under King Knut, who was the first, the King Knut, of course, was Danish, who invaded, who conquered the whole country precisely because it was so divided. 
And he's the first king to actually call the country England officially in documents. Um, he's a foreigner. English unity is created by a Danish king, um, who's then followed by two more Danish kings, Edward the Confessor, who's half French, and, and half Danish, uh, half Danish uh, Harold Godwinson, who falls at Hastings. Uh, it, this is not the story of a long-established, wonderful unified kingdom, which is some sort of proto-democracy. Uh, proto it's the story of, a, of, a, of a, a land riven by rival warlords, which is ultimately conquered by foreigners because of being riven by rival warlords, you know. Um, however mythical it is, though, it does seem to be something that resonates uh, with people. And indeed, you say it does have some truth to it in the sense that if we, are, have, if we in England have been ruled by this foreign elite, who's a sort of southern foreign speaking, and then, you know, Brexit, for example, as a project and its popularity was a sort of breaking off or throwing off of that. And that's certainly a narrative that resonated with people. Certainly. Oh, absolutely. And that's that was that was that was frankly the, the, the genius. One has to call it that uh, of vote leave was to, to see that it's all about language. Ah, and I say ah, meaning the Remain side, to which I remain unashamedly attached. Uh, the mistake was to try to counter populism with with rational arguments which you can't we see that now the, the best counter to johnson is marcus rashford it's an, a counter emotional appeal leave actually understood that if you bang on about freedom and liberation i think of johnson I mean, it's johnson's favorite words in every context are quite clearly freedom liberation he understands with that sort of dark instinct he has that um that these words chime very very deeply in the minds of people who have felt generation after generation for a thousand years that the people in charge of them are not just a higher up version of themselves because no one objects to that if, you know, no one objects to an elite that's your elite people in trailer parks vote for trump because they feel he's their leader nobody in manchester objects to the fact that wayne rooney or marcus rashford have paid hundreds of thousands of pounds a week they're their elite but what Johnson understood is that for, for a thousand years, the, the ordinary English people have had this suspicion based on truth, that the elite of this country is actually a culturally foreign one. And he played like a demon on that, you know, by carefully using Anglo-Saxon words at all the climax of his speeches and banging on incessantly about this deep resonating chord about some nebulous freedom, some nebulous liberation, which was exactly what the, 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 the zealots of the Reformation played on in the 1530s and the levelers in the Civil War. It runs really deep in us because as English people, we know in our hearts that whenever we open our mouths in front of someone we don't know yet, we will instantly place them and will be placed by them as whether we, are, whether we belong to, you know, which side of this gigantic cultural class divide we, 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 we lie on. And it's something which makes our life tentative. We feel constrained by it. And we long for freedom. We long for mad outbursts of freedom, like the Reformation, smash up the statues, like Wembley, smash the place up. Because somehow, deep in the English heart is this sense that we have this, as you might say, the Norman yoke is still on our shoulders. And you describe how essentially the, 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 the institutions of England that we, we, we think of and are so uh, powerful and has, have been for so long, you could probably include the public schools, Oxbridge, Inns of Court, Parliament, are essentially southern English institutions. Uh, and, and, and the people in the north haven't had much connection with those, with those places and are, and are sort of in many ways excluded from them. 
Well, absolutely. And this is, this is where it gets really complicated and fascinating. And, and this is the key to why we are so complicated and in, in many ways so confused, not to use a stronger word. And um, we have this in England and only in England compared to any other country in Europe, we have this double split. We have this ancient geographical split between the North and South that goes right, right, way back to before England was England, which meant the, the South has always been the richer and more powerful part. It was under the Romans, never mind the Normans. And, now, and then overlaid on this split in one country, you have since 1066, this cultural and social split between a ruling elite and the rest of the people. So what you get is this extraordinarily powerful uh, coming together. Once England is united, which is only really happens in the 16th century, a real political uni unification. Um, under an English speaking elite, they gravitate towards the South. So that once this unifying French elite have sort of become English, so to speak, which only happens quite later on in the 15th century, that's what the Wars of the Roses are all about. Then the splits come up again, the South wins as it always will because it's more populous and richer. And from that moment on, the elite stop being this kind of unifying elite of French speaking people set apart from the rest of us. And they, they identify with the South as their power base. And the North doesn't get a look in again until the industrial revolution, um, which is why you have things like the Chartists, which is why you have this attempt, which Karl Marx himself praised officially, um, in 1853 to set up an alternative parliament in Manchester because the North finds a voice again with the Industrial Revolution for the first time really since Master Moore in 1644 um, and it challenges. That's the, the mass Chartist meetings in London are a direct challenge from the North to the South. And what happens then there's this final, for the, over the next 70 years you have a final great cultural attempt by, by the Southern elites to, to, um, to unify the whole elite of England with the public school system, then with the BBC beaming RP into every home. It's a sort of, sort of cultural war of its day. And they're quite open about it in the 1850s. They, the new public school system, the new, the new mass system of public schools was founded specifically to make sure the Northern English bourgeoisie um, became like Southern English gentlemen. The funny thing is it's Boris, isn't it? And, and Boris seems to be the embodiment of exactly the kind of thing that um, people are meant to be revolting against. I mean, he is he is French speaking, raised in Brussels. He will be, you know, he speaks to Macron French. You know, he's always quoting Greek and Latin, um, the product of obviously Eton, Oxford and, and all the other establishment. How has he pulled off this trick to be, you know, win so many seats in the north and be the sort of focus of the, you know, levelling up or the northern agenda? Or how how has he managed to how does he manage to do that? He's managed to do that by, by presenting himself now. And Farage, of course, tried it quite successfully with his Beer and Fags Act. But Farage was always a bit too bitter in the face and so forth. He could never be this kind of almost music hall comedy Merry Monarch that Boris Johnson is. He's done it by appealing to this, this idea of the, the Lord. He, he, he's the person as the Lord of Misrule, who, although he comes from the elite, will liberate everybody. It's exactly the same that sort of Thomas Cromwell and people, the appeal they made. In, in the Reformation, he is of the elite, and yet his tastes, his 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 deliberate gaffes—they're not Johnson's gaffes are not gaffes. They're they're part of his appeal because he manages to give the impression, and it's a fantastic, it's a brilliant political act, largely enabled, as we know, by not the nine o'clock news back in the day. And um, he's 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 perfected this act, which manages to say to ordinary people, "Yes, I'm rich. Yes, I'm from the elite. But you know what? 
really, I'm just acting like you'd act given half the chance. And so he manages to persuade people that although he's of the elite, he's their kind of elite. You know, in this gigantic exercise in valence voting, which is what the UK is, he's, he's managed to persuade people that in some mysterious way, he's sort of on their side against the kind of, against the do-gooders, against the killjoys. Um, which in fact, you know, that's always been a part of, 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 the, of the Tory party's armory since the age of democracy. And Lord Salisbury plays on it a lot as well. The idea that the liberals want to close down pubs. We don't. The liberals want to stop gambling. No, let English working men gamble, that sort of thing. Uh, along with an anti-immigrant rhetoric, of course, that was that was the same then as now. So he's managed to persuade people by this by this act, by his mastery of um, of the TV, essentially, that he is not a member of the ruling class of this of this kind of culturally foreign ruling class. He's a rich guy, but he's one of their rich guys, like a PG Woodhouse lord. And as I say, no one objects to an elite provided they think it's their elite. You know, speaking of their elites, I mean, we have to talk about um, the empire, really. And it's, it's never obviously called the English empire. It's called the British um, empire. And, and, and it, in a way, are we seeing, um, you know, we saw independence movements in the 40s and 50s and 60s and a gradual decreasing um, landmass um, of the empire. And, and Britishness, of course, uh, we we often forget it didn't just extend to sort of people on these islands. People in West Indies were British. People in East Africa, from my own family, were British, had British passports, were regarded uh, certainly legally uh, as such. But in this sort of diminution of the British Empire and independence, are we just seeing, in a way, the breakup of the United Kingdom as the last sort of step, last the sort of gasp of the empire? Yes, I think absolutely. I mean, the, 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 the Britain, you, you're quite, there was no, no such, we don't say the English empire for the very good reason there never was one. I mean, in the, in the last decades when England was an independent country before 1707, there were, I think, three, or, three to 400,000 colonists in America max. Nothing. So by, by today's standards, say five million as a proportion of the population. Um, the empire was a creation of Britain, not of England. Uh, it's created by the same elite who crush the English working class, the Scottish working class, the Irish peasantry, the, you know, the Scottish Highlanders. It's this extraordinarily ruthless free market 18th century elite who, 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 who invent, say they invent a new state for themselves and they invent a new set of values which they call Britishness and which they then succeed extraordinarily in, in sending around the world. But it all actually starts to collapse from, from the middle, from the inside, the moment people are given the vote. Because if you look at the maps, of the very first democratic election in 1885, or sort of democratic, um, you'll see that, that straight away people start voting on ancient tribal lines. They're no longer voting as, as, as some theoretically one person. They're voting along ancient, ancient tribal lines. And so the British Empire starts to collapse from within before it starts to collapse from without, fascinatingly. You know, we lose Ireland in 1921. Ireland was a third of the entire population when the UK was founded, the vital part of it. And Ireland left at a time when the British Empire theoretically still ruled a quarter of the world. So it, it, it collapses from the inside, not from the outside. And one of the legacies of empire, of course, the ethnic minorities living in uh, in England today. And I know lots of people who I know and, my, and myself have, have sort of, you know, Britishness is a some, somewhat of a sort of comfort blanket, you know, because it is multinational, multilingual even as well. It's, you know, one can call oneself Black British or British Asian. But Englishness is always really been associated with being white and whiteness 
And we've seen it in the football, haven't we, with you know the, the racist abuse against the, the, the black players who missed the penalties. There's always still seems to be, you know, the idea that you can maybe be an ethnic minority and British, you know, just about, but to be English, you have to have these certain um, characteristics. But do you think that as the population changes and that, that there's a certain sort of, we could develop out of that in some ways? And the Englishness, as it's sort of coming out into the light, it's going to bring out lots of ugly feelings, but also the potential to maybe change what it means to be English. Well, I hope you're right. The, the parallel, the possible parallels with America, of course, are not encouraging in the sense that when, when, when a debate about what is Americanness suddenly comes up, it seems to polarise people rather than bring them together. Um, I know exactly what you mean about Britain, because I, I myself am one of those people who, who self-identifies as British, but has considerable problems doing so as English, because I'm, I'm part Scots by birth. I was brought up in Scotland. I have two Welsh-speaking sons, of whom I'm very proud. Uh, my wife is, is, is a Protestant from, uh, from Southern Ireland. So I'm, I'm like the UK personified. Whether I really feel English, whether I, whether I would feel English in the independent England, which I'm afraid is coming, is entirely another matter. I don't know whether I feel comfortable with that at all, because I'm not sure what it means yet. And that's the whole point. And um, that's really what we're talking about, I guess. You know, as you say, this, this, is, this is a place where you had a member of the ruling party saying he would not support his national team, England, if they made what he thought was the wrong cultural gesture. It's very hard for me to imagine being a patriot of England because I don't yet know what that would mean. Yes, and we saw that, and you know, with the you know the violence and the football on sun on Sunday as well, and there was that the uglier side of of that national identity. It's no coincidence, you know, somebody. There's the the, the, the two sets. Remember, they had all those clashes between England and Russian hooligans, uh, one of the Euros recently. It seems to me to be no coincidence that the two countries whose whose, for want of a better word, you know, ordinary working people seem to be most prone to aggressive public behaviour like this are England and Russia, because both of those share one really important thing is that, and the way they vote shows this, there's a very, very deep feeling in both that somehow some conspiracy of foreign people has robbed them of their great, great and glorious place in the world. That seems to me to be something that the Russians and English at the moment share. It's not nothing to do with the Scots, Welsh and Irish, particularly English. Uh, there is clearly something about this. I say I've lived in Ireland. I'm part Scottish. I've seen it with my own eyes, experienced it. For some reason, you know, the Irish abroad seem to be able to cheer their football team on and get really drunk without anyone causing a fight. The English seem to be constitutionally incapable of doing it, as are the Russians. And it's something to do with this feeling that you've somehow been cheated, that somehow you should still rule the world. It's very uncomfortable. Well, so a thought-provoking uh, uh, end there. I mean, as Kipling says, what they know of England, who only England know, but we don't really even seem to know what England is. But the um, fascinating discussion. And um, thank you so much, James, for... Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. For taking the time. Thanks for having me. Bye bye. 
Right. Thank you, Samir, and thanks too to James Hawes. Do look up that piece, The England Delusion, on our website. And that's all from us for this week. So thank you very much indeed for joining us. If you enjoyed the podcast, please do leave us a rating and a review. Goodbye, stay safe, and we'll see you next week. Thank you.